Hello, and welcome to Max and Jason Watch a Movie. This is sort of Max and Jason Watch She-Hulk, Attorney at Law, but we're not going to talk about any of the episodes yet. This is just me this week in Lord Movie Studios, and I'm going to be talking pretty strictly about the literary origins of the character She-Hulk, or Jen Walters, and very little about the new show itself. It's all about the comic book origins of Jen Walters this week. Before Jennifer Walters was She-Hulk, Attorney at Law, Jen was the sensational She-Hulk. And before she was taken to sensational heights by John, John Byrne, Jennifer Walters began her hulking hero's journey, a journey that lasted 25 issues as the Savage She-Hulk. It isn't clear that anyone had high hopes for Jennifer Walters or the She-Hulk she became. This is because as savagely sensational as She-Hulk was, or became, she was essentially a savvy copyright protection move concocted by the late, great Stan Lee. According to David Anthony Kraft, Stan Lee came up, came into the Marvel bullpen and said, we need a female She-Hulk in the comics and we need her five minutes ago. Why, you may be asking, did Lee need this female Hulk so quickly? At the time, in the late 1970s, to be exact, Marvel Comics had an incredibly popular hit show on CBS. That show, as you may have guessed, was The Incredible Hulk. It starred Bill Bixby as Dr. David Banner and Lou Ferrigno as the Hulk, and it ran from November 4th, 1977 to May 12th, 1982. Daredevil-eared listeners may note that I said David Banner and not Bruce. The producers and the creative team decided to change the name, and the exact reasons for this name change remain shrouded in historical mystery. Stan Lee and Lou Ferrigno both heard rumors that the producers at CBS thought the name Bruce sounded too gay. If true, this just goes to show how different the past can be. They did things differently back then. Anyway, back to Stan Lee's problem. In the earlier part of the 70s, the other big popular sci-fi show was The Six Million Dollar Man. That show spun off, spun off another wildly popular show called The Bionic Woman. Stan Lee, student of copyright entertainment law of the period, recognized that if CBS created a female Hulk that didn't have its antecedent in the comics, they would own the rights to the to that character and Marvel would have to pay CBS to use the character in the comics if they wanted to. By this point, Marvel had juggled the story structure of the Incredible Hulk comic book to more closely resemble, though not perfectly, the lonely man on the run aspect of the television series. Stan Lee wanted to prevent a situation where CBS might have Marvel over the copyright barrel and be in possession of a character Marvel might want to use. So Lee, as he had done with Spider-Woman a few years earlier, and for pretty much the same reason, engaged in a little fast and dirty copyright flag placement in the fertile soil of the Marvel Universe. Stan Lee and the almost supernaturally fast, consistent, and great penciler John Buscema churned out the first issue after a super-fast brainstorming session. After that, Lee handed the series over to David Anthony Kraft, whose mentors Kraft cited as science fiction writer Lee Brackett, Stan Lee, and pulp fiction writer E. Hoffman Price. This is an interesting mix, and I won't spend much time here except to say this. If you don't know who Lee Brackett is, look her up. There is a delightful science fiction surprise in store for you. Sadly, Kraft died uh, on May 19th, 2021, uh, from complications uh, with the... Uh, of the coronavirus. Kraft worked mostly with penciler Alan Kupenberg on Savage She-Hulk, but there were a couple of other artists who did some fill work and an assortment of other artists who did co cover work. I'm not sure if this is correct, but as a reader myself, it did seem that Marvel editorial staff was using the new Savage She-Hulk book to break in and test new talent as none of the heavy 
hit or artists of that era were assigned to the book. Kraft had been reassigned to She-Hulk after a successful run of his writing the man thing. And I'll, I'll talk more about that later. But I have to say, audience, uh, I didn't realize David Anthony Kraft died so recently. And it made me really sad. He wrote the first 25, the first 24 issues of She-Hulk. And he seemed like a pretty pleasant guy. And my heart goes out to his family and to anybody who really appreciated his work on comic books. It, I, I'm one of those people. I, I got a little teary-eyed when I was reading his obituary in the New York Times, which I'll try and link in the show notes. Uh, so go read that if you get a chance. Anyway, before we get to Kraft's run, I think it's important to explore the surprisingly good start that Lee and Buscema gave to Jen Walters. In Jennifer Walters, Lee and Buscema created a very interesting woman that was largely unique in superhero comics of the era. This is my hypothesis. Unless they were superheroes, women in comics tended to be boy crazy and largely relegated to secretarial type jobs and generally existed as the love interest for our male heroes. Jane Foster, at least, was a nurse. Jane Foster, of course, was the love interest of Thor and now is a Thor, I guess. But her role was still to be the love-struck lady uh, and and struck insecure by, sorry, and struck by the insecure pathos of Dr. Donald Blake. In the modern era, this has largely changed, and even characters that are love interests for heroes have their own lives and interests and aren't so pathetically one note. But in the late 1970s, not so much. Comics women were still trying to catch up to Mary Tyler Moore. Was Lee thinking about the culture's changing landscape for women? I suspect Lee was. His writing and his attitudes were always a tad progressive and humanistic, even if they weren't always perfectly expressed in his writing. I think Lee was trying to say some good and positive and, and humanistic things in all of his writing, stretching back all the way back to the 1960s. Every writer is, a, of course, a prisoner to the times in which they lived and were shaped, but I think Lee deserves some cre considerable credit for having a mind capable of moving on from old ideas that were not terribly hum humanistic or equality-minded. Enter Jennifer Walters. She doesn't exist to please men. She has her own very professional job as a successful as a successful defense attorney. She butts heads with some of the chauvinistic partners in her firm, which gaslight her more than a little bit. This material is done in a way that doesn't distract from the storytelling or feel particularly didactic, but seems like a natural thing that uh, women would have been experiencing at the time, especially in the 70s. This is the heyday of the feminist movement. It was almost certainly being talked about as the feminist movement of the 1970s was making its voice heard, not just provocatively in the popular sphere, but also persuasively. Stan Lee and John Buscema really seemed to have embraced that and, and gave us a character in Jen Walters who was attractive and sharply dressed, but not drawn as a scantily clad sex pot. When Jennifer Walters turned into the Hulk, she didn't suddenly become the most attractive woman in the Marvel Universe. She became a taller, more muscular version of herself. This isn't to say that the artist didn't try to, to titillate or scandalize readers a bit with how scantily clad She-Hulk becomes as the Savage Shield. All Hulks have this problem when they transform, and that is the fact that human clothes, normal human clothes, don't fit Hulk-sized people very well. So they certainly did titillate readers a little bit. Uh, She-Hulk had pretty long legs. But Shulky, as she would come to be called, I think Ben Grimm may have been the first one to call her this, was not traditionally attractive in either her personality or her physique. I think she may actually be the first modern hero shaped by feminist ideas, at least profoundly shaped by feminist ideas. Ms. Magazine may have put Wonder Woman on the cover of their magazine in the 70s or early 80s, and movie fans may have lost their minds clam claiming incorrectly that science fiction and fantasy had its first feminist superhero when Wonder Woman to the big screen. But at least as comic book goes, I think Jin 
Walters fits this bill of a feminist icon much better than Diana of Themyscira. Now, I'm in no way disparaging Wonder Woman or even saying she doesn't deserve a lot of her feminist street cred. She, she certainly does. William Moulton Marston, the inventor of also the lie detector, in addition to the creation of Wonder Woman, certainly applied some earliest feminist ideas to the character of Wonder Woman. And though he may have been hindered a bit by the fact he sort of worshipped the idea of woman, he succeeded admirably in giving the comic book world a woman who was as strong as Hercules and as beautiful as Aphrodite, as one tagline used to go. Wonder Woman is a splendid character who has certainly evolved with time, with the times, but in the 70s and even in her movie outings, she also hits a few classical heroine tropes that Jen Walters largely avoids. Jen is not a princess and she doesn't fall to bits over her love interest, which has always been kind of a problem, especially in the early She-Hole, I'm sorry, in the early Wonder Woman era. But I mean, if you look at the Wonder Woman movie, of course, uh, yes, Diana is very strong, but she, she sort of hits kind of classic woman in distress kinds of tropes at times. Not always, but, you know, she's a princess. She's classically attractive, which, which there's nothing wrong with that, obviously. But she's also kind of, she's overly smitten, and I think that her love interest takes too much of a of the story. It, it assumes too much of an important point of the plot, I think. I might talk about that some other time, but that's sort of where I'm at with Wonder Woman. I love the movie, but it wasn't until after I saw Captain Marvel that I, I realized more clearly what I thought, what, what some of the flaws of, of the first Wonder Woman movie were. And don't even get me started about a Wonder Woman 1984. Anyway, back to She-Hulk. Stan Lee's She-Hulk is modern and interesting precisely because of her modernity. To his credit, David Anthony Kraft saw this potential in She-Hulk and leaned into it. And even though looking back, there are things that Kraft wished he had done differently, he is justifiably proud of his efforts to make Jennifer Walters a modern independent woman. He also had her bump up against the chauvinism of her time and make the chauvinists the bad guys in these interactions, which wasn't always the case in popular works at the time. In the 70s, more often than not, the alleged limits of women's in, uh, of women's equality would, would get their comeuppance in film and television series. Lee and Kraft and all the artists and other creators who worked on the show, I'm sorry, on the comic book, deserve, deserve a lot of credit for making the chauvinists the bad guys and not giving in to that desire to have She-Hulk constantly be saved by the man, which sometimes would happen with Wonder Woman. Though not often I have to give the guys at DC and, and women at, at DC a lot of credit for their work there. But but a lot of times in popular entertainment of the 70s, even though there would be a strong woman, she would have to be saved often by a man in the story. All right, so let's dive into... So so we have this new show on She-Hulk, Attorney for Hire. So I want to talk a little bit about the origins and kind of structure of the early She-Hulk book. So you, so you, the viewer, can, can learn a little bit about how it's different and how Marvel's changed it for this modern telling. So let's dive into the origin of She-Hulk or Jen Walters. In issue one of the Savage She-Hulk, we get a splash page of Bruce Banner. Banner, of course, is on the run and desperate and in desperate need of expert legal advice. So he goes to LA to see his cousin, childhood best friend, brilliant young defense attorney Jennifer Walters, to tell her why he dropped off the face of the planet and hadn't spoken to her in a few years. At this point, it was not widely known that Bruce Banner was in fact Hulk. Jen is appropriately shocked, but is willing to help her cousin out. Neither are aware of their danger. And there's always danger in the Marvel Universe. Jennifer 
is representing a mobster in court. And while she is aware that that can be dangerous, as activities in the legal world go, mobsters obviously have ties to mobstery things. The skill with which she is representing her client will make things bad for LA's major crime boss, Nicholas Trask. Trask is upset by this. If Jen gets, gets her client off, he might take a hit. I can't remember exactly why, but it'll hurt his business and maybe you know send him off to jail. So he decides, Trask, to have Jen eliminated. There is a certain juicy double edge to the murder for Trask. Jennifer Walters' father, LA County Sheriff Morris Walters, has been successfully disrupting Trask, uh, disrupting the Trask rackets. So the killing of Walters eliminates the problem she creates, but also hurts the widower and enemy sheriff of this LA crime boss. And so as Jen and Bruce exit her vehicle, the henchmen of Trask shoot at both Walters and uh, I think at both Walters and Banner, uh, and they wound Jen pretty badly. She gets shot pretty close to her spine. They miss Banner, and Banner, to his credit, holds his temper in check and rescues Walters. He immediately notices that his his cousin's blood loss is pretty severe. And as he, after he calls the paramedics and the police, he decides to initiate a blood transfusion. They share the same blood type, which he knows, and luckily they probably share a few of the same genes, which are going to be important <laughs> in saving Jen, because I think Bruce's blood is pretty gamma irradiated. The blood transfusion stabilizes Jennifer until the paramedics and police arrive, and Banner ends up giving the police a false name, none too convincingly, in holding during his interview. And while the skeptical patrolmen go to check his identification, Banner has a panic attack, turns into the Hulk, and escapes both the holding cell and his and his plot work done the rest of the issue. Doc Bruce Banner, exit stage left. I think he even leaves the frame of the comic book to the left. I'd have to look that up to be sure. Audience, if, you, if I get that wrong, make a comment on the Twitters or wherever the hell you read this. I want to point out something here, too. This is, a, this is an interesting example of how the live-action shows and movies have affected the continuity of the actual comics as much as the comics affect continuity of, of the, their screen counterparts. And this is one of the reasons why Stan Lee was worried about CBS creating a She-Hulk that they might want to use or would have to use because The Incredible Hulk was sending people from the show who wanted to get their fix of the Hulk to the comic book stands. And so they'd sort of change a lot of the... the they retconned the Hulk a little bit. So, in the original comic, Banner's only profession was that of a nuclear physicist. The comic is retconned. If you don't know what that term is, look it up. In response to the popularity of the show, they, they retconned Banner's backstory to align a bit more with the hit show, which, as I said, was drawing readers to the print version of their favorite TV monster. Now, the comic book had, now, comic book Banner had attended several years of medical school, or, depending on the writer and the sharpness of the editors, a, a full MD before drifting into military weapons development that dovetailed with his medical research interests, which were gamma-related biology. So, so now, after this, after this little retcon, Banner sort of becomes is one of the smartest characters in the MCU. Uh, in, I'm sorry, in the comics, uh, because he's he's some kind of polymath now. He's a doctor of medicine. He's an he's a, an excellent physicist, a, a passable biochemist. He's 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 easily in the top ten of Marvel's smartest human characters, below Reed Richards, Tony Stark, and T'Challa and Shuri, but but pretty close to those guys too, and woman Shuri. Anyway, moving on. So, Jennifer Walters recognizes her would-be killers, uh, as they had shot her earlier in the day, and in her agitated state undergoes her first anger or fear-induced change into her savage second self. As a Hulk, she dispatches with savage sensationalism her attackers and manages to change back to her normal form before anyone in the strangely understaffed L.A. hospital notices what has happened. In her introductory run, Jennifer Walters' She-Hulk, as one might predict, has both similarities to her cousin's Hulk form, but also considerable differences. Both become larger and stronger, both are super fast, though 
though not as fast as, say, Marvel's Quicksilver. Jin's transformations are, in the early portions of the uh, of, of this run, triggered by rage, fear, or high levels of anxiety, like Bruce's. But unlike Bruce, her Hulk form never really manifested as a truly separate personality. Jennifer Walters never really had an other, an, an other guy. Her She-Hulk is probably best described as a more fearless and bold version of her own self. There are some differences. Her green self dates a different guy other than Jin, other than her Jin self. And here I don't want to reveal too much more about this run, even though there are, there's no etiquette. In, I, I don't think any etiquette is violated in spoiling a story whose last issue came out 40 years ago. But this is who I am. So I want you guys to, I want you guys, uh, gender neutral. Sorry, I use that term a lot and I, I don't know if that's right. But I, like Stan Lee, am a prisoner of my development and my ontology. So I use guys. I don't mean anything by it. Hopefully everybody is chill with that. I mean it in a gender neutral sense. So guys, here we are. Um, <laughs> sorry, that was just, that was a sidetrack. I feel I'm self-conscious about using guys. So also, if I dive too deep into that, it won't let me cover other ground. So anyway, I don't want to go too deeply into this story. Marvel has the Savage She-Hulk run, the 25 issues and I think an annual, available in a few formats that you can order or get. I bet your I bet your local comic book shop has at least the Marvel Omnibus Savage She-Hulk, and and you can get the the other format that I really like is the Marvel Masterworks format, and it's in two volumes in that format: Savage She-Hulk Volume One, which has like 10 issues, and then Savage She-Hulk Volume. Two, which has the uh, the rest of the of the series, like just fourteen more issues uh, for that first run. Or you can try a Comicsology, which is a great comic book reader. It's owned by Amazon now, and it's not as great as it once was, but it's still pretty good. It's still the best comic book reader on you know e format comic book reader. It's better than the Kindle comic book reader. So, and the purchases that you get on Comicsology will be available to read on your Kindle if you prefer that. And any comics that you read on Kindle or buy on Kindle can be read on. Comic Comicsology. So it's kind of convenient that way. Sometimes the prices are a little weird too. Like sometimes you can find the book cheaper on Kindle than you can on Comicsology, and so you buy it there on your Kindle in your Kindle store, and then you go read it on the Better Reader. Sorry, Jeff Bezos. The can the, the Comicsology e-reader is just better. So anyway, I'll, I'll I'll try and provide links to those in the show notes after this run. So the Savage She-Hulk is a is a pivotal run. It's an important run. I I want to touch on it because I think it sets the stage for who Jin is and sort of established her bona fides as a kind of a feminist hero. But that's not the only important run that there was. So between, so after Savage She-Hulk, uh, Jen Walters would make appearances in other Marvel comics, and she eventually would have joined, joined the Avengers, would join the Avengers, I'm sorry, in the comics, and be affiliated with a few other teams. In the 1980s, there was a series called Secret Wars, and I think that sort of established how popular, uh, or how cool She-Hulk could be, and it certainly, I think, set John Byrne's mind uh, uh, racing a little bit, because either after... After Secret Wars, or a little bit before, he brings Jen Walters into the Fantastic Four. He was writing Fantastic Four at the time. He left the X-Men, where he was the, chiefly the artist, but also co-scriptor. And there's a lot of drama that I can talk about on some other time or when I'm talking about X-Men. But John Byrne and Chris Claremont, all the team there. But John Byrne had left X-Men and was writing She-Hulk. I'm sorry, writing Fantastic Four and doing a great job. But he has Jen Walters join the Fantastic Four when Ben Grimm, a.k.a. the 
thing, leaves the Fantastic Four. She's the new muscle and legal uh, counsel. And I bring up John Byrne and Fantastic Four because it leads directly into John Byrne's She-Hulk run. More than any other run on She-Hulk, John Byrne's sensational She-Hulk is probably the most important and character-defining. It is also perhaps my least favorite She-Hulk run. I still have to mention it because it introduced it introduces Jin's most perplexing superpower. Well, what power is that? You may ask. Well, Jin Walters, She-Hulk can see us. Long before Deadpool talked with audiences, Jennifer Walters smashed through the fourth wall. I'm not the first person to come up with that little uh, term, you know, kind of a play on Hulk smash, but anyway, I think it's weird enough that anybody can use it. So she smashed through fourth wall. And she did it for the first time in issue three of the sensational She-Hulk. And I, as I said, this was years before Deadpool was even an ill-formed, footless thought in Rob Liefeld's little eyes. I won't spend much time here. I like the burn run, but it sort of treats She-Hulk as a kind of joke, and to me, She-Hulk is more than that. I much prefer Byrne's treatment of She-Hulk in his epic run on the Fantastic Four. It's really hard for me to get emotionally invested in, in She-Hulk, in sensational She-Hulk, because the whole book sort of seems to satirize the superhero comic with a character that I like a lot. Still, the art is great, and Byrne did introduce a very cool element to Jen Walters' Hulk. Jen, unlike Bruce, likes her Hulk form, and elects to stay in that form all the time. Beginning in Byrne's Fantastic Four run, Byrne had She-Hulk try to improve on her attributes. As I said, there are a lot of similarities between She-Hulk and Hulk, but she's not as strong as Hulk, and she's just a little less strong than Ben Grimm. So one of the things that she she does is, is, is so as, as she's not as strong as, as some of the people she'll have to fight, and even though she does get stronger as she gets angrier, her anger is rarely as all-consuming as Bruce's, so it's not really a good, it's, it's not as good an attribute as it is for Hulk. And so this was the case even back in her Savage She-Hulk days. When she was, she was a little rougher around the edges, but she was never as savage as the Hulk could be. So, with the help of Super Brain Reed Richards, Jin starts working out to make herself even better. Uh, as a weightlifter from, from way back, I appreciate, I absolutely appreciated this about her. Byrne is, has to be credited, I, I think Byrne has to be credited with uh, writing a sharp, witty Jin in both the Fantastic Four and the Sensational She-Hulk. Like, I, I don't like the way she breaks the fourth wall, but it is funny. Byrne's a great writer, and there's a lot to recommend this book. But it just wasn't the She-Hulk book for me. And I don't I don't return to those issues as, as much as I do other She-Hulk runs. And it has to be said, there is more to She-Hulk fiction than Stan Lee, David Anthony Kraft, and John Byrne, as great as all those contributions have been. I, I'll, I'm, I'm going to make this hypothesis, I'm gonna, and I'm going to make this bold claim. Almost every She-Hulk series is worth your time as a comic book reader. And I think many of them are going to influence the MC, MCU She-Hulk. And, and, and here's why. The nature of the comic book reader mostly male, mostly young, means that interest in a female character that doesn't often seek to titillate horny young males is a comic book that is likely, it is unlikely to grab large, consistent readership. A comic book that doesn't generate lots of consistent sales is a comic book that isn't destined to last more than a couple of years. This is both a blessing and a curse for She-Hulk fans. There is always a clamor for She-Hulk content from this core of fans. Marvel, t and, and Marvel, to its credit, listens, and they take a chance, and it seems, to this reader anyway, that because Marvel editorial staff doesn't anticipate a Spider-Man, X-Men, or insert your favorite sales monster here, the editorial staff on any She-Hulk book is more or less hands-off. This means that writers and artists are free to take more chances and thus take She-Hulk in quirky, unique, and or much more emotionally interesting and resonant spaces than they might be with a book already generating massive amounts of print revenue. She-Hulk is thus almost always more interesting than anything going on anywhere else at Marvel. 
and that's not a knock on everything else at Marvel. It's just a different kind of. It's it. Shield is just often a different kind of book. But but Shield gets to do the and Shield gets to do the general superhero stuff while at the same time writers are free to explore more fun places and spaces with her. This is great for fans, but often that very uniqueness means that writers are necessarily crafting a niche book sure to appeal to fans of She-Hulk, but that might not gain traction with comic book fans outside this, you know, really dedicated fan base. As such, She-Hulk fans get maybe one, two, or three years of fantastic She-Hulk content before a series is canceled, and we have to wait for someone to come up with a great pitch for Shulk to Marvel's editorial staff. Uh, even though my fellow collectors don't often see the She-Hulk brilliance, there has been a metric ton of great She-Hulk content created between now and that time Stan Lee and John Buscema first conceived her as a way to screw CBS out of money. And I'm sure many of those quirky, touching, action-packed runs will show up in the new Disney show. And I and later on, we're going to tackle these episodes as they come out. We're already two episodes in. The My, my co-hosts and I just really haven't had a chance to kind of commiserate and schedule a time to talk about these things. And we still have to do the Dirty Harry series. So we're going to break down the She-Hulk show, or I will, if they don't want to. We'll just keep talking about that. But And we'll get back to Dirty Harry and other things besides we've got Halloween season coming up soon. But in the talking about the She-Hulk episodes, I'll be bringing, I'll talk, uh, I'll talk about any any particular particular She-Hulk series that I think might be informing the writers of the She-Hulk show. If you've listened, if you listened to earlier, I mean, if you if you've watched the show and you and you listened to this, you'll know that they've already changed a few things. I'm not mad about that as a as a diehard fan, but but I did notice the changes. Now you know what those changes are. But if you were wanting some She-Hulk reading suggestions, as we all watch She-Hulk together, and I know you were, here are my top She-Hulk reads in no particular order. Number one. And these are non-burn craft or, 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 or none of the ones that most people will talk about. So not Savage Shield, not the John, John Byrne run. I had to double check my list to make sure that I was true. And it is. So, again, in no particular order. Number one, She-Hulk by Charles Sewell and Javier Pulido. In this, Jennifer opens up, in this series, which just ran for like 12 or 14 issues, Jen opens up her own superhuman-focused law firm. The art is quirky, the relationship's wonderfully rendered, and more than enough action is there in the book to keep even a reader with a short attention span happy. It's pure fun. The art is really amazing. It's not, it's sort of, in that playful area that Michael Aldred works in, but not quite. It's, it's 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 even a little different than that. But I love the art, and I think it's a great run. She gets to work with Matt Murdock, Daredevil. They both defend Captain America in a court of law. She-Hulk, Charles Sewell, Javier, Javier, Javier Polito. Get it. It's at Amazon. You'll love it. You'll thank me. The second one I found really touching, and I was a little shocked at how powerful I found the, the book. Uh, She-Hulk, Deconstructed, written by Mariko Tamaki, and penciled by Nico Leon. This is Jen Walters at her most vulnerable. We haven't seen her this vulnerable probably since the, the Savage She-Hulk days. And this is her in her She-Hulk form the most not herself since the, the Savage She-Hulk days. In this series, Jennifer awakens from a coma post-Civil War II, which is a major comic book event in the Marvel Universe. She awakens from this coma after having nearly been killed, and I can't remember by who. When she wakes up, she finds that her cousin, best friend, Bruce, has been killed for a little while. <laughs> 
Marvel comic book characters are a lot like Jesus Christ in these things. They come back in the myths. They come back just like the Christian myths. Anyway, she is devastated by this. She's devastated by the fact that her battle, I think it was with Thanos, uh, almost killed her, didn't save Bruce. And in this one, she's really dealing with trauma and post-traumatic stress. And it's really harrowing. She can only change into the Hulk when she's mad again or scared. And when she does, she changes into her least favorite form of the Hulk and that is the gray form. And when she changes into the Hulk, she, she has these weird gray scars, these glowing green scars that seem to remind her of her injuries. In the Hulk mythos audience, the the minds of the people who become Hulks, whether they're whether it's Emil Blonsky, whether it's Rick Jones, whether it's, well, anybody who becomes a Hulk, their their conception of themselves, their mental conception of themselves often affects how, they, how their physical transformation proceeds. So this is Jin's trauma Hulk, I guess. She's much more brutish, I guess, in her form. She looks a lot meaner. She looks a lot scarier. But I, I, I think this is this is a neat series. It's about Jin coming to terms with a profound tragedy and about how people have to deal with the ways tragedy and trauma change them. It's a good book. The art's great. A lot of action. There is a resolve. You guys will like it. Go check it out. She-Hulk Deconstructed. And then, right now, audience, Rainbow Rowell and Roj, I think that's his name, Antonio's She-Hulk just came out this year. Issue one came out in 2022, I think. Yeah, 2022. And we're only seven issues in. You could rush out to your comic book store. I bet they've got all of the issues there on the shelf. And I cannot say enough about this series. The covers are great. I can't remember what the artist is who, uh, oh, Jen Bartel. Jen Bartel is the artist who does the covers. And they're great. The interior art by Roge Antonio is, is great. And this is sort of reminiscent of a lot of other runs that we've got with She-Hulk over the years, but it's also its own thing. And it's very upbeat. It's very fun. She's returned to being a lawyer and she's trying to solve the mystery of a friend of hers who everybody thought was dead, but who returned. Again, you don't stay dead in the comic book universe, folks. And she's she's practicing superhuman law at a law firm. And it's just wonderful. It's I don't know. I really enjoy it. We're, we're getting to see her. The book is establishing her history a little bit, sort of introducing new readers to her relationships, her friendships. She's best friends with the Wasp. Uh, the Wasp is letting her stay at a, her old penthouse apartment. The Wasp is kind of rich in the comic books. And so it's it's still kind of building the mystery. We meet Titania. I think that's how you say her name, who's in the new series. And that's kind of cute. They're, they, they're starting to become friends. And so anyway, she by Rainbow Rowell. Go out and get it. I think the trade paperback's going to be out soon. And audience, I think I think that if you want to take a chance on a comic book, She-Hulk's always kind of fun. There are other great runs too. An honorable mention is Peter David, uh, who wrote The Incredible Hulk for, gosh, almost as long as Chris Claremont wrote X-Men. But uh, he was a great writer on the Hulk, and he did he did a he did I don't know a solid three or four years with the She Hulk, where he basically has her become a bounty hunter. She gives up being a superhero, she gives up being a lawyer, and she goes and pals around with a shape shifting smart aleck squirrel named Jacinda. And that's that's a good one. It's not my favorite because the art just the, it was happening during a period where Marvel was basically reestablishing itself as as the dominant force in comics. So they were still trying to get 
get some of the art art talent back. But anyway, so the art doesn't quite hold up to the the past history of Marvel. It's still pretty good, and the writing is great though. So 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 that gets an honorable mention. Look, if you're inspired by the television show and you want to learn more about the She-Hulk, I definitely urge you to go dive into the the source material, the primary sources over at Marvel Comics. And that's that's all I want to say about She-Hulk right now. Hopefully that was entertaining to you, and uh, it'll give you some insight into at least some of the stories that might be informing the She-Hulk show and, and, and informing the tone and ideas of the She-Hulk show. So that's all I'm going to say about that. I'm going to mention a couple things really quickly. I recently saw, uh, by way of recommendations or not recommendations, I recently saw a movie called Calvary starring Brendan Gleeson. And if you've seen the trailer for it, you, you kind of notice that it's uh, it's it's sort of advertised as a dark comedy. It's not a, there's no comedy in the film at all, actually. It's, uh, it's a very sad movie. <laughs> And it's about a priest who is trying to do his work in a small rural town in Ireland, the name of which I don't remember. And it's sort of about this priest seeing like the, basically the underbelly of this small, you know, bucolic town. And he basically only sees people who are, you know, confessing to him or in need of something, uh, some kind of counseling of some kind. Or he's getting needled by the townspeople for the many crimes of the church come to the fore of our consciousness in recent years. Brendan Gleeson's character, I don't remember what the, the, the character's name, is is not a bad person, but of course he's part of an organization that, that has earned some of the opprobrium that is heaped upon him rather than the organization as a whole. And and so he's, he's, he's we see him kind of being bitter and sad for, for the whole movie. And Brendan Gleeson is a treasure, and he's, a, he's, he's wonderful in this. And the film really, really is trying to be an important film. It's a serious film and it and it makes a serious effort to say serious things and I think I think for the most part it succeeds but it also falls a little flat at times because there are tropes that these kinds of almost religious apologia uh, apologia uh, apologia apologetic it's not really that it's not really an apologetic but it is it is kinder to faith than than I am inclined to be a lot of the time but so audience I'm 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 a, an unbelieving infidel I don't I don't I don't believe in any religions uh, or any of the religious hypotheses that are on offer by our species uh, on any of the in any of the cultures that, that that offer such hypotheses I think they're all about equally likely to, to be right <laughs> which is to say I don't think they're very likely to be right at all but I would never go out of my way to bother a priest and so this is one of the tropes that is in the film there's an atheist in the movie and one of the things that, that religious writers seem to do is they can't conceive of an atheist that's just minding his own business or her business that is more or less as happy as any of their neighbors and is not mean or suicidally depressed. In this film, the atheist trope is the mean atheistic scientist doctor. It's a doctor who is bitter and 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 sort of tries to needle the the priest. Uh, Brendan, Brendan Gleeson's priest the whole time and I know a lot of atheists I don't think I've ever met any atheist that would, would do this now that's that's not to say that there aren't asshole atheists there are assholes in every demographic atheism certainly is not atheists certainly aren't above a little ridicule of, of, of ideas certainly now and again but I've just never seen any I've never, I, I, you know I haven't even seen too many religious people going the other way he's just belligerent really so I, I find that trope to be pretty tired 
that stereotype to be pretty tired. The film, to its credit, though, after the doctor says some of his uh, his stereotypical angry atheist rants, he does say, ah, the atheist doctor, sort of a stereotype, isn't it? And so, so it, the, the film does have a little joke at its character there. The film is all about the priest sort of dealing with the fact that in the beginning, and on on Sunday, a person in his confessional says they're going to kill him at the end of the uh, at the end of the week, and it's sort of about Brendan Gleeson's character going through that week Sunday to Sunday. And I won't tell you how it ends. Uh, I know it's an older movie, but I, I don't really like to spoil things. There's sort of a mystery about the the priest himself, but it's not really fully explored. I don't want to say much about the film because I think mileage will vary. Uh, I don't want to give you guys a verdict, really, because I, I, as I said, I think mileage will vary. Some I think some people might really really like this movie. For me, it all fell apart in the in the final act. I could I could deal with the stereotype. I mean, sometimes you're not you just can't get away from these these tropes. They're easy things for writers to do. So I can forgive these things if everything else around it is pretty good. There's a lot of great acting in the movie. It's it's stellar acting. I mean this is a serious movie. I really wanted to to like it more than I did. But when you when you add the tropes and the stereotypes that the that the writer sort of took an easy route with, I think anyway, with the the conclusion of the film, I just wasn't satisfied with any of it. it all seems a little too depressing, I suppose. I don't mind a depressing film, but yeah, this just this it, Calvary didn't work for me. But I think everybody should see it because I think it's a film that really works hard, and it's I think it's to be admired, even though I didn't really like it. So that's all the news that's fit to print from Lord Movie Studios. If you like us and you want to help us out, you can do so by leaving us a five star review on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find us. If you want to reach out to out to us, you can leave a comment at our Podbean pod podcast host, or you can shoot me a, a tweet at the Supper Test on Twitter, or you can email us at lordmovies39 at gmail.com. You guys never do, but I wish you would. Give us some suggestions about what you want to see us talk about. We are going to be doing a big Halloween thing. We're gonna have to we're gonna try to have two Halloween podcasts per week in the week of October. It's ambitious, especially for me as I'm the editor. But we're gonna try that. Shoot us some suggestions about what you want to see us talk about. We've already got one thing in the works, but otherwise, it's pretty open. So, that said, good night. Let us know what you think. Bye-bye. Oh, <laughs> Let me try it again. Looking more closely at the Savage She-Hulk also functions as a window into how writers at Marvel operated then, and probably now, despite Marvel's relatively tight editorial control. So, as I said earlier, Kraft had been pulled mid-story arc from the Man-Thing, and despite the fact that Man-Thing took, took place in the Everglades of Florida, Kraft would later go on to figure out a way to, more or less convincingly, bring those characters from Florida to L.A. and complete a story while moving the She-Hulk plot ball forward. So I think that that's kind of interesting, just kind of the way writers sort of take their stories with them from book to book and figure out ways to finish off the stories they were kind of jazzed by. I, I just think that's kind of neat. So, and Dave, Dave if, you, if you guys get any of the books I'm going to recommend at the end, David Anthony Kraft has a, a big essay in one of them and he sort of talks about how, how writers did that. And it's, it's, interesting, it's just an interesting insight into the way comic book storytelling works. 